Welcome to our podcast from The Ark Insider, the Africa-focused podcast offering some informal but well-informed Africa-focused conversation, touching on news, current affairs, culture, and other ongoing topics of interest. I'm Karen Allen, and I'm speaking to you from South Africa, my co-presenter, Tara O'Connor, who leads the Pan-African Risk Consultancy firm, Africa Risk Consulting, joins me from France. We both live, breathe, and work African affairs, and our podcast seeks to stimulate ideas among those who, like us, share a fascination with this part of the world. Tara, welcome. Hello, Karen, and greetings from France for my last few days before I head out to East Africa for a whistle-top tour around Kenya, Tanzania, before heading to South Africa, where I hope I'll see you. Good to talk, Tara, and it'll be great to have you back on the continent. We return after a short break for the Ark Insider. This is the first one of 2023, and of course, it's going to be a busy year for Africa. We've seen a flurry of visits from senior figures from the US and Russian administration to Africa in recent weeks, signalling some interesting geostrategic positioning, including South Africa's decision to stage joint naval exercises with Russia. And we have a slew of elections coming up on the continent, most notably, of course, Nigeria, the focus of this podcast a little later on. And to give you a flavour of what we shall be talking about, here's Nigerian energy lawyer Najim Animashon, who's acting as our trusted guide. He's coming in with a very clear message that he's not the old guard. And the thing about the old guard, the two established um, parties, is that there is tremendous infighting between them. So there's infighting within the PDP. Um, there's a group called the G5 recalcitrant governors who are not really happy with the Tindic, with the Atiku uh, president, uh, president well, nomination candidacy. And the, um, the closest uh, elements within the president's circle were very unhappy with Tinubu emerging as the APC standard bearer. And that can really only work to the advantage of Peter Obi. And I'm really looking forward to that. Yeah, really interesting guy. First, though, Tara, let's have a look at some of the stories that have dominated the headlines since our last podcast. More than 42,000 people are now confirmed to have been killed in earthquakes in Turkey and Syria. The city of Antakya in Turkey's Hatay province was one of the hardest hit areas. Now, Russia's Foreign Minister Sergei Lavrov has arrived for talks in South Africa with his counterpart Naledi Pandor. The two nations are firm partners and Pretoria has refused to condemn Moscow's invasion of Ukraine. South Africa has begun military exercises with both China and Russia as part of a routine army drill. Joint training has drawn immense criticism from the West, coming nearly one year on from the start of the Russian invasion of Ukraine. Janet Yellen is the first of several senior US officials expected to visit Africa this year, including President Joe Biden and Vice President Kamala Harris, although the dates for their trips are yet to be released. The Treasury Secretary during her trip will be giving substance to the US's new strategy for sub-Saharan Africa. She'll be emphasizing private sector activity as an alternative to Chinese state-backed loans that many indebted African nations can no longer afford. Yes, Tara, and the earthquake in Turkey and Syria really has been the story to dominate the news in recent weeks, hasn't it? Yes, Karen, and we've seen quite a lot of African philanthropy in action over that story. 
Um, and including um, Egypt. Egypt has sent, I think, five military planes carrying urgent medical aid to both countries. Yes, and you'll remember, Tara, we heard from the head of the South African charity Gift of the Givers in our last podcast. They've deployed very rapidly in the immediate aftermath of the earthquake. They first sent in search and rescue teams. Now they're delivering food aid to survivors and what are, of course, bitterly cold conditions. Imtiaz Suleiman, who was our guest, who we heard from on the podcast, has been sending updates on social media. And it is a reminder that the Global South is also very much contributing to the aid effort. Sometimes I think it's something that gets forgotten about globally from time to time. Yes, it's absolutely true. The Global South's efforts are often ignored by the main media. But anyway, and then on to a story in Zambia, which uh, struck my interest, of course, as usual. Um, But Zambia's business community is up in arms about rolling electricity cuts, which again brings something else into play, which because they are largely caused by a prolonged drought, which has affected the main power provider, the Kariba Dam hydropower plant that feeds both Zambia and Zimbabwe and is historically the source of very stable electricity for both countries. But electricity generation was cut in December and January because of low water levels. And and this has been um, a problem. You know, obviously it's climate change um, induced, but it may be reversed. And certainly the electricity situation has improved because of recent heavy rains that have seen part, indeed seen part of the capital, Lusaka, flooded. Yes, Tara, I was in Lusaka just at the start of those rains, and it really is a very potent reminder of just how much flux we're seeing in weather patterns in this part of the world. Another story, though, just to mention, given that this is an important year for elections in Africa, and we'll be talking about the Nigerian elections a little later on, a big investigation by the Guardian newspaper as part of an international consortium of journalists has exposed a vast operation led by an Israeli former intelligence operative called Tal Hanan, who operates under the pseudonym George. Uh, It's claimed he's using hacking and automated disinformation techniques to influence elections, including many across Africa. There's been a big focus on the operation's alleged meddling in the recent Kenya elections, creating fake profiles and attempting to sabotage rival campaigns by sowing deliberate falsehoods or by tapping into deep-seated fears, then amplifying them on social media platforms. So much focus on nation-state information operations at the moment, but what this investigation really does show is the growing private market in disinformation, which is particularly alarming for this part of the world because there are so many fragile democracies which simply don't have the infrastructure to be able to rebut such operations. I mean, it clearly is a new frontier. Uh, you know, the, the yeah. social media battle is clearly the new frontier uh, for de- for democratic activists. Um, and it is also for, it's the new battleground for people defending democracy. Yeah, well put, Tara. And I'm sure that's something we'll be talking about in the months and years ahead. You're listening to The Ark Insider with me, Karen Allen and Tara O'Connor. Now cast your mind back to this. I, I, Muhammad Buhari, Muhammad Buhari, do solemnly swear. 
that I will be faithful. That I will be faithful. And bear through allegiance. And bear through allegiance. To the Federal Republic of Nigeria. To the Federal Republic of Nigeria. Yes, it's four years since Nigeria's President Mohamedou Buhari was sworn in for a second term. And now, on the 25th of February, Africa's most populous nation goes to the polls once again. More than 100 million voters will decide their country's fate. And in a moment, we'll be getting some expert observations about why this is such a significant election for Nigeria. But first, a quick run through of the top three candidates. In this election, the focus has been on three front runners. Bola Tinubu is from the governing All People's Congress, the APC. He was a former governor of Lagos State, and he has the power of incumbency on his side. Importantly, that means access to funds and access to the security services. Atiku Abubakar is a former vice president, businessman, and former civil servant who leads the opposition People's Democratic Party, the PDP. It'll be his sixth time running for the top job, and he's hoping that his past record on privatizing key state industries will stand him in good stead at the polls. And Peter Obi is something of a wildcard candidate. He leads the Labour Party. He was also a former governor of Lagos State and is expected to pick up a lot of the youth votes with his anti-establishment stance and his targeted social media campaigning. But commentators say he doesn't have the funds to win. So a good performance by Obi this time around could surprise or, at the very least, secure his position the next time Nigeria goes to the polls. Thanks, Curran. Well, to offer some expertise about Nigerian elections, we've invited back Nigeria's top energy lawyer and policy advisor, Najim Animashon. Thanks. It's great to be back. Um, I, I, I wouldn't uh, profess to be the top energy lawyer. I'm probably the, the second string of, the, of, <laughs> of energy lawyers, but I do do a lot of policy work. Too modest, too modest. But this is a very important election for Nigeria, isn't it, Najim? But also for Africa, given the vast size of Nigeria's population, the size of the economy. And what I wanted to ask you is, will it be driven by economics, by the reform agenda, or by personality? Well, I think all of, these, all of the things you mentioned are going on. I think the, con- the economic conditions in the country are um, making people very frustrated and it's actually helping to turn out the vote, particularly the youth vote. And, you know, <laughs> uh, over half of our population is under 19. So um, it's, it's a lot of people, frustrated people ready to go. I think it's also worth mentioning here that, you know, Nigeria's, ele- you know, the people who are registered to vote number 100 million, which in the context of Africa, that's bigger than most countries in the region. Yes, and in this election, we've had 10 million people, 10 million young people registered to vote. So you're actually probably going to get a fairly high turnout election. Uh, and if that's the case, then it actually favours one of the new candidates more than the old candidates. So Peter Obi, so yeah. quite, which would be quite an upset for the for the elections, wouldn't it? It, it will go against the the um, the grain. But Peter Obi is, is coming in at a time when uh, the stars are essentially aligning for him. He's coming in with a very clear message that he's not the old guard. And the thing about the old guard, the two established um, parties, is that there is tremendous infighting between them. 
So there's infighting within the PDP. Um, there's a group called the G5 recalcitrant governors who are not really happy with the with the Atiku uh, president uh, president well nomination candidacy, and the um, the closest uh, elements within the president's circle uh, were very unhappy with Tinubu emerging as the APC standard bearer. And that can really only work to the advantage of Peter Obi. And finally, of course, there is uh, a fourth candidate who um, is not a main candidate, but in the North can actually you know, garner enough votes to be a bit of a spoiler, particularly in Kano. And that is Robbio Puanquaso. Uh, and if Puanquaso splits the Kano vote, essentially comes first, were 30 or so percent, then that robs the two main candidates of one of their vote-rich states. And nobody in Nigeria has become president without winning a combination of Lagos and Kano, or Lagos and Rivers, or Rivers and Kano. So if Kano is not in play in terms of for one of the major candidates, that is a serious problem. Doesn't the constitution dictate that you have to win X many uh, of the third, uh, you know, of the states. Absolutely, um, we, we we have <laughs> we have a constitutional provision for the presidency that treats the country as one constituency, and the winner is the the person who gets a plurality of the vote. Plus, he must have at least twenty five percent of the votes in two thirds of the federation. So, twenty four of the twenty six states must, you know, return at least 25% of the votes for the winning candidate. Now, with four main candidates, well, three main candidates plus one regional candidate, that's going to balkanize the vote in terms of people getting that 25%. And so we expect that there will be a runoff, which will be a first for Nigeria. Can we rack back just for a second, Najim? Because for people who have not been following Nigeria closely, they remember when President Buhari was was sworn in and there was much, much excitement about it, particularly from the West. This was a guy who was positioned as someone who was going to tackle corruption. But he's been criticised, hasn't he, for his highly interventionist stance, for the slow pace in appointing a cabinet, for failing to take on board sound policy advice not to mention persistent concerns about his health. Just in a nutshell, and I know nutshells are difficult to do in Nigeria, as with any elections, but what, what do the three main candidates, what do they actually offer that's, that sets them apart from each other? I think all of them have demonstrated economic competence and political nous and savvy. In the, in the case of Atiku, uh, he was vice president under Obasanjo's regime and... In, in those three years where there was, uh, well, for, for four years, between 1999 and 2003, where the two of them were in sync before they fell out in 2004, 2007, Nigeria's economy grew by at least, I think it was, uh, the highest it grew was 15.5% in 2002. I mean, remarkable growth um, during that period. And, and Atiku was responsible for economic policy and economic management at that time. So he's obviously demonstrated that he's capable of managing the economy. He's also quite an astute political operator. 
The only thing he's never been able to do is actually win elections as the main candidate. This is his sixth attempt <laughs> at running for president. Will that be his last attempt? In probably do you think? the sixth party. Sixth attempt and last <laughs> attempt, or do you think it'll keep going if he's unsuccessful? Well, I don't know. I kind of I, I like to I like to compare Nigeria and Kenya, and he's uh, <laughs> he's uh, Rahilo Odinga of Nigeria, and apparently he's actually quite close to Rahilo Odinga. He's also very close to Jacob Zuma. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> That's a whole different so conversation. He, yeah, yeah. So he's he's of that of that uh, generation of African leaders. Yeah, but he he would fit quite 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 easily, uh, quite well into the. Uh, African Union and, and those. So he's, he's, he's fairly competent. He's probably, his instincts are more um, capitalist driven, so less interventionism than Buhari. Uh, Tinumbu, as everybody knows, has done really well in Lagos State and he's, he's done it in a way that has created a functioning state, but almost in an Erdoganistic way. <laughs> um, so you, you'll have fairly competent technical management uh, under a Tinumbu, but very much um, um, personalized around the leader. Uh, Peter Obi has done very well in Anambra State, uh, but he's also, uh, well, no, let me, let me not go there. <laughs> he's presented himself very much as the, um, Peter Obi as the, as the young new generation candidate uh, with a professional background, more than the more than being from that political class that we were talking about earlier, which uh, from which uh, both Tinubu and Atiku are from. So, what's your view of that? Is that uh, um, is that a, a, a credible presentation? Well, I think Peter's done a fantastic job of presenting himself as an outsider. He's he's basically run a. a an insurgent campaign. Um, and he's kind of like the William Ruto of Nigeria. Mm-hmm. The Kenyan um, leader, yeah. You know, the, the the hustler nation. And he appeals to the younger generation and there are lots of them and they're willing to fall behind it. And he calls it a movement. And so all the people who support Peter Obi are called obedience. Mm-hmm. It's a term mm-hmm. that I find... Great marketing. I find it, I find it really offensive because uh, it, it, it keys into the messianic... Uh, you know, uh, you know, hero worship uh, that, that Nigerians tend to do. They're always looking for a messiah. And that's exactly what they thought they were getting with Buhari. And even then I kicked against them. Mm. And I said, this man is incompetent. I've, hopefully you don't publish that. <laughs> but, but a lot of people really, really fought with me on that issue. And I'm talking really, really smart people. Like, this man doesn't, doesn't have a coherent economic policy. He doesn't have first principles except for the fact that um, he thinks that wrong things should not be done. Now, you know, to give you a, a, an example of what I mean, he despises the way politicians are corrupt. However, it was through politicians that he acquired power. Mm-hmm. Um, and one of the things that he's done now, which is really causing it set the cat amongst the pigeons, is that he has actually changed the currency. So... <laughs> So this process has gone on uh, since the end of last year, sometime in October, and the old notes um, cease to be legal tender as of February 10, right? The election is on February 25th. And the areas where vote buying is most prevalent, which you need cash for, and lots of it, is in the north where it is people are particularly poor. 
So if the old notes are no longer legal tender and you stashed up a whole bunch of old notes, you have a serious problem on election day, yeah. <laughs> getting votes. And it's caused Tinumbu and many of the northern governors a whole lot of consternation to the point where it has gone to the Supreme Court. The governors have taken the federal government to the Supreme Court to extend the deadline by which the old notes will still be legal. So they can pay off the voters? Because lots of people will find that very strange. But but they've gone to the Supreme Court to to challenge that, that currency change, but in order for them to be able to pay voters to vote for them to become the next president. Yes, the, the, this currency thing is actually really noble. It's, 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 it's really caused a lot of problems for people's planning. They were supposed to print uh, and circulate about 350, sorry, 3.5 trillion Naira's worth of, um, uh, of notes, but they only released 10% of that. So in a, an economy that works purely on cash, that's, a, that's quite catastrophic. Um, and it's basically dislocated, you know, all commercial tra- uh, transactions, activities. I mean, people have been fighting in banks. Banks have shut down uh, branches because people can't get uh, money. Queues at ATMs are 12 hours long. Najim, just in terms of what Bahari sort of set his stall out, and we, we've already touched upon f- countering corruption, but what other things, what were the expectations that he'd built in the minds of, of, of ordinary Nigerians? The manifesto was a purpuri of, that Bryce manifesto was a purpuri of, of giveaways that they just couldn't fund. Mm-hmm. Uh, they tried several policies like the Ankaboros program, which was to try and um, stimulate agriculture through uh, Ankaboros that would then distribute to the farmers. And, and, and then that way they would either raise um, uh, living standards. They tried to uh, establish what were called rugas to start a dairy and a meat industry by providing uh, grazing and pasture land for for herders to try and avoid the herders' farmers' conflict. But because everything is essentially politicized in Nigeria and they put everything through the central bank, what happened was a lot of this just disappeared. A lot of this money just disappeared um, and and, and has created... um, uh, wealth for, for, for several, a few individuals mm. and a lot less for, for uh, much of it didn't go to the average average person. You know, Africa Confidential says, and I think this is a fabulous quote, millions of Nigerians are unwell, uneducated, hungry, angry, emotionally exhausted and desperate for change. I wonder if you wouldn't care to comment on actually what the Buhari um, time in office has actually done for ordinary Nigerian people? And what is that change that people are desperate for? Oh, I think the change they're desperate for is the same change that they expected Buhari to, 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 to implement. One of the things that the Buhari administration came into, and it sort of, you know, at the end of the day, that's how it started, was there was a huge fall in the oil price in 2014. Exactly. And a lot of, a lot of countries were suffering, a lot of oil producing countries were suffering um, as a result of that. But then he spent you know, six months doing absolutely nothing while our, you know, um, our balance of payment situation grew worse and worse and worse and worse until something had to give. Um, and he kept the exchange rate without letting it go, um, you know, without letting it, you know, fall uh, in line with the fall in the price of oil. Najim, just, just for a bit of context, you know, people know Nigeria as this oil-rich country and yet... None of the four oil refineries function, as I understand. 
it's actually a net importer of, of oil. How does that work? Why is that the case? Nigeria for 60 years, well, no, more than 60 years, nearly 70 years, has, has operated an extractive industry. It has not operated a petroleum industry, mm-hmm. which meant that there's not much domestic utilization of the petroleum that it produces. They don't refine any of it. They don't create um, other service industries around it. For example, um, when Norway discovered oil in the early 70s, it ended up partnering with Shell and a few other companies and then ended up being one of the leading um, countries, Statoil now, Equinor, one of the leading um, international state-owned oil companies. They diversified their industry very fairly quickly within 20 years. Um, and they created a petroleum industry. And they also set up a, a sovereign wealth fund that's you know, got trillions in, in, in money under management. Nigeria did no such thing, just kept on selling crude and pilfering the money. That's why we're where we are. So, of course, um, in subsidizing petrol, refineries could not operate on a commercial basis and ultimately ground to a halt um, as a result of that and corruption. Nigeria had to resort to importing petroleum products, which is why we are a net importer of petroleum products, so particularly diesel and petrol and aviation fuel, which we could be refining in our own refineries. While we're trying to create a petroleum industry, the question now is is really, is it worth it, um, given the issues with climate change and the energy transition? So we're faced with a lot of questions, and the next administration has to you know, do quite a bit to manage all of these issues. Do, do any of the candidates actually touch on that issue of the energy transition, or it's just too much to go there at the moment? Nigeria is currently operating four transitions simultaneously. We have a political transition underway. We have a petroleum transition underway because we've we've, we've enacted the Petroleum Industry Act. We have a demographic transition underway, which you can see manifest in this election, viscerally manifest in this election. And of course, we have the energy transition as well. And so when you put all of that together, you really only fight the fires that are immediately in front of you. And the energy transition is kind of sort of out there in the background, but it really is the driver of all these other transitions. So if you don't address that, you can't really, you're just basically addressing the symptoms of the other transitions. But if you're a politician, you can't think in those terms. I mean, I understand why they can't think in those terms. And the issue for the international community is, and they're not really waking up to this problem, is that Nigerians are hungry for democracy. They haven't seen the dividends of democracy. And providing Nigeria with that space in an energy transition to create a just and equitable um, um, energy uh, transition program, like South Africa did, or something similar to what South Africa did, would go a long way to rebalancing the body politic in Nigeria. You summarise the transitions that are happening very, very, um, very succinctly. Um, but one of the things that you that um, that is part of this transition and part of this change is the old traditional way that we looked at politics in Nigeria, even in even since the advent of democracy. You know, we traditionally, you know, a northern leader had to be followed by a southern leader, a northern. Uh, um, Muslim had to partner with a Southern Christian in order to win the votes. 
And that's broken down in this election. So those sort of traditional views that we've got of Nigeria are breaking down as well. Yes, this is a... <laughs> well, actually, let me, let, me, let me take you back a bit in Nigerian history because the context will, it matters here. Um, in this election, uh, a lot of things have happened to get to this point. And one of the problems, one of the things that has happened is that the candidates that have, that have emerged are, have emerged as a result of the political choices and the bargains made t- 10 years ago. In 2011, when Goodluck uh, came into, uh, essentially was elected the first time, but re-elected for the Yardu administration, that essentially changed the nature of the North-South because the North perceived that to be their turn being taken over by Goodluck. So in 2015, the coalition that ousted Goodluck was a series of northern frustrations which became um, personified in Buhari with a western, southwestern alliance, which also felt a little bit neglected by good luck to basically um, uh, elect Buhari. And that was the first time in Nigeria's history that an opposition party had actually um, defeated an incumbent. But in order to do that, you had a coalition of different parties come together to form APC. You had the Southwestern Party called the ACN. You had a a Kano-based Northwestern Party called the CPC. You had a Northeastern Party called the ANPP. And then you had the rump of the PDP that basically uh, were fifth columnists. And so that's how good luck Jonathan was essentially defeated. But as soon as they got the presidency, CPC essentially took over the presidency and ran the country without the uh, support of its coalition partners. And so the rump of PDP went back to PDP, which is why you get the Senate President Bukola Saraki going back to PDP. You had ACN retreat to its southwestern base, and you had AMPP basically disappear. And now we are reaping that whirlwind. (laughs) Because... (laughs) <laughs> because, <laughs> because what has happened in this election is that PDP uh, has become resurgent um, in the sense that the party has got more members because more people have come back to it. But that's caused a fissure within PDP. Atiku went to APC, came back to PDP. But floor yeah. crossing has been banned now again, hasn't it? They so there's it. less. Well, they still they still do it. Still happens. They still do it, and and it's part of the problems that we have in this election. This I, I keep saying the international community has to really dig deep and provide the technical political support for this election because Nigerians have faith in the electoral system. They don't have faith in their politicians, but they really believe they could turf these guys out then that's, that, that makes a democratic bulwark in Africa that sends a message to the rest of the continent. Now, if you think in our region, we've had four coups, five, four coups in the last three years. And our northern border is really unstable from Chad to Mali. Um, it is a mess. And we have our, our security issues. If we can pull this off successfully, it is great for the rest of the world, and we really need that support. I mean, I'm, I'm using this as a platform to, to, to basically 
um, advocate that. We do like our freedoms. We do like our Nollywood. We do like all the things that we do, <laughs> right? But we only do that in this environment where we are free to choose our own leaders, so to speak, even if they pay us to do so. <laughs> even if they pay us, exactly. And therein lies the rub. Najim Amirashon, thank you very much indeed. You are more than welcome. You've been listening to The ARC Insider with me, Karen Allen and Tara O'Connor. If you're interested, ARC publishes in-depth risk briefings on 22 countries around the continent. You can subscribe to these at info at africarisconsulting.com. If you enjoyed this podcast, please do let us know. You can use the same address and do feel free to share our podcast on social media and amongst friends. Our sound engineer was Ludwig Boer and this podcast is a Karen Allen International production. Bye for now.